Let's pray together. God, you are awesome. Your son is wonderful. Your spirit is magnificent. Your word is perfect. Your church is beautiful. Your gospel plan is amazing. And Father, we ask you for the next few minutes to love that plan even more and to be grateful for the good news. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. Low in the grave he lay. Jesus, my Savior. It is right that so very often we take a few moments to consider the death of Jesus. And we talk about the events leading up to and including the cross of Jesus, the suffering that he bore. Uh, you recall for several Sunday nights in the not too distant past, Tyro and I preached a series on the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. And it is right for us to never let those things slip from our mind. How, what a great plan that it was, even though it was tragic that Jesus had to go to the cross. And then, as is right, we quite often consider the resurrection of Jesus. The event that gives us our hope that the grave could not hold him. And, spoiler alert, we're going there in a few minutes. But we're not going to focus on that fully. But the resurrection is an amazing event. If Jesus just died on the cross and remains buried somewhere, then we can go home. There's no reason for us to be here. But sometimes we consider just the events leading up to the death of Jesus. And then we jump forward to consider the resurrection of Jesus. But did you notice in our scripture reading this morning, In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul had already in verse 1 said that what he was getting ready to write about was the gospel, the good news. In those verses, he said that among those things were the fact that Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. And that He was raised in accordance with the Scriptures. And of course, we read a little while ago, the text goes on to tell us that Jesus proved that resurrection beyond a shadow of a doubt by appearing to so many for the next several days. But sometimes we sort of just skip over that little tidbit, that little fact that He was buried. You know, Paul thought that this message, he called it in verse 1, the gospel, was a very important message. And in fact, in the first section of 1 chapter 15, he uses several different words to describe the way that message needs to be shared. For example, in verse 1, he says that this was something that he was going to remind them of. Some translations use the word declare. The word here means to make something known. It's just an intellectual word. I'm going to put this in your mind. I want you to, to remember something. I want to declare this so it goes into your mind. By the way, it's interesting that later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you recall that, that Paul said, In fact, Christ has been raised. It is intellectually known that Christ has been raised from the dead. But also, Paul says in verse 1, that he preached this message. Euangelizomai, evangelize. This is good news that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised. It is something to be shared as good news, not just an intellectual thing. But Paul also says in verse 3, This was to be delivered. The word literally means something that was given and shared alongside something else. Paul was basically saying, I want to give you something that you can take and compare with other things. Share it alongside other things. You're going to see that what I'm sharing is the gospel. It's the good news. It's the truth. 
But it is worth comparing and considering in that way. And then past the verses we read a little while ago, all the way down in verse 10, 11, excuse me, Paul says he preached. By the way, it's not the same word as in verse 1. This word is the word caruso, to herald a message of authority. This is the word you may have heard described sometimes as the town crier, coming with a message from on high to deliver to the people, to the city. Paul says, this is as important of a message as I could possibly share. It's something to be intellectually known. It's something that is good news. It's something to be compared alongside other things. It's something that needs to be heralded as if it were a message of authority. And among those things is what we sometimes overlook. We're calling this morning's lesson the forgotten piece of the gospel. Because what I want to do for the next few minutes is consider the burial of Jesus. It's part of the gospel message. We're not going to focus all of our thoughts on just the burial. But what I want to do is sort of fill in what we sometimes skip over. We, we sometimes get right to the point where Jesus dies. And then we jump all the way forward to where he was raised from the dead. And there is so much found in the middle of those things that should build our faith even greater in the gospel message, the good news message of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to think for a few moments this morning about what happened moments or minutes after Jesus died, what happened hours after Jesus died, and then what happened days after Jesus died. If you have your New Testament, turn to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to read together a fairly lengthy passage. I know this is longer than what we usually read together, but we're going to use Matthew's account as sort of the basis for our lesson this morning. We're going to begin by thinking about what happened moments or minutes after Jesus died. Now, I know this is a lengthy reading, but I want you to read with me, beginning in verse 50, all the way through verse 66, and I'll read it without any comment whatsoever. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. It was in the evening, uh, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing a stone and setting a guard. 
That text will serve as the background for most of what we're going to think about this morning. We'll bring in some things from Mark's account, Luke's account, and John's account. But I want you to think about what happened, not literally minutes, but in those moments that Jesus died in the first place. First of all, consider the fact that something very natural happened in those moments. And that very simply is the fact that, yes, Jesus did die. Verse 50 of Matthew 27 tells us He cried out. Literally, it is He croaked out. And it's interesting that you also have in there the Greek word megaphone. This is an amplified cry. Croaking. Screeching. Mark, by the way, tells us in these moments Jesus breathed His last. Literally, He blew away His last breath. You can just see Jesus' body on the cross as the last ounces, as it were, of air escape through His lips. And He dies. But such is natural. Hebrews 9.27 reminds us that all of us will die. It is a point when a man wants to die, and after this comes the judgment. That's, that's just natural. I didn't even put the references on the hand anywhere else because there's so many of them. But how many places in the Old Testament are we told of someone, he went the way of all the earth, or I am going the way of all the earth. They simply understood that people die. James reminds us that death, physical death, is the separation of the body from the spirit. It will happen to each and every one of us who is not alive when Jesus returns that we will die. So something very natural happened in those moments. But that's not all that happened. Because also, something supranatural happened. That is, something that is above and beyond nature. You ever thought about those amazing events that occurred when the temple was torn, the veil of the temple was torn? Some translations have the word curtain of the temple. This was no small thing. The curtain of the temple was approximately 60 feet high. About 25 to 30 feet wide. And some scholars suggest, by the way, that this is more than just some kind of shower curtain. That this curtain was so thick, it was almost soundproof. This was a huge, heavy curtain. And you remember the text tells us that it tore, not from bottom to top, as any of us could have at least attempted to do, whether it could have actually pulled it off or not, but from top to bottom. But literally, it is away from the top to the bottom. Picture in your mind. The veil of the temple beginning to fall from the top and one side going all the way to the ground while the other side hangs limp away from the top to the bottom. And now in your mind's eye, remember what the Hebrews writer tells us. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, he said, We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the veil or the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner, literally as a scout on on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That veil was torn in two by the power of the death of Jesus, and Jesus entered behind that veil. He entered behind that curtain. He tore it away from heaven to earth so that you and I could have access. Something supernatural, something above and beyond nature happened when Jesus died, but also something supernatural happened. I've heard it suggested, and you have as well, 
that the text tells us that, oh, there was an earthquake and the rocks were split, but that could have just merely been a coincidence. It just happened to be that there was some kind of earthquake, that the earth quaked as, as Jesus died. It just happened to happen. And after all, that part of the world, earthquakes are not totally common, but they're not unheard of. Until you study the language, the original language, and it says literally that the earth was shaken and the rocks were split. These things were done to the earth and to the rocks. This was not a coincidence. And I want you to consider also that all the way back in Exodus chapter 19, when God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai, do you remember that there was shaking, there was earthquake, there was all this flashing, it was, it was God's presence announced in glory. And now, as God with us makes His exodus, it is done with the same supernatural power. It's tying the fact that Moses brought in the law from God and Jesus was taking it out of the way. Something supernatural happened that day. But also in those moments, something maybe not unnatural as we're calling it, but at least unusual happened. Because as the report comes to Pilate that Jesus had died, Mark's account tells us, and Mark 15 and verse 44 tells us that Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus had died already. Literally, Pilate marveled at the wonder of this announcement. And the reason is quite simple. As gruesome and as awful as crucifixion was, you've heard it said many times that the Romans had perfected it. They knew how to keep someone alive on the cross. Not just kill them on the cross, but to make it the worst kind of pain possible. I've mentioned to you before that our word excruciating comes from a Latin word that means out of the cross. When we say we have excruciating pain, what we're literally saying is, I'm in pain as if I were on a cross. X is out of, and crucia is crucifixion. But they also knew how to keep someone alive. In fact, most people were on a cross for days, several days, and it was not uncommon for it to be well over a week that someone was on a cross, suffering in total agony. Jesus was on the cross for mere hours. And so it's no wonder Pilate was amazed. But even more than that, something unnatural happened because history tells us that most of the time, in the moments just before someone died, or really in the hours just before someone died on the cross, they became, if I may use the terminology, they became a raving lunatic. Because they were not breathing right anymore, because their their brain was not getting the right kind of oxygen, they went mad on the cross. Jesus never lost His faculties. Everything that he said on the cross was spot on, was remembering Scripture, was honoring God, was forgiving those around him, was taking care of his mother. He never lost his faculties through it all. A sign of great strength. It was quite unnatural, at least unusual, that Jesus died so quickly. But it was also part of God's plan. For as in the Old Testament, a Passover lamb was slaughtered at twilight, early evening, So was our Lord. In the late afternoon, even though He had only been on the cross for a few hours, He died to become our Passover lamb. So those things happened in those moments as Jesus died and the moments following. But what happened just a few hours later? We don't know how long it was exactly from when Jesus died until Jesus was buried. But consider with me 
some things about Joseph of Arimathea and how he honored Christ, but also some other things here. We're introduced to this man named Joseph of Arimathea, but other accounts of the gospel make it clear he's not alone. Nicodemus, who was well known to us from John chapter 3, is also present. They're granted the body. But we see in these moments as they bury the body of Jesus some remarkable things. First of all, and I have to say it's possible, but I see some possible regret in Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew's account that we read a few moments ago simply tells us that he was a rich man. So what? That doesn't make any difference to us. Other accounts fill in more detail for us. Mark 15 and verse 43 describes Joseph as a respected member of the council. We know that council to be the Sanhedrin. The hedron sitting, san or soon, together. The ones who sat together. Sometimes they're called the Jewish Supreme Court. He was a respected member of that council. Who just hours earlier had had Jesus on trial. And could have ended it all. Where was Joseph of Arimathea then? Is it not possible that as Joseph begins to do what he does that we're going to honor as well, it needs to be honored in many ways, that maybe there's some regret coursing through his mind that I could have spoken up, that I could have at least said something. Because the text tells us he was only a disciple, John tells us, secretly for fear of the Jews. It's possible regret. But there's more here. I also see that there is powerful Powerful repentance. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10 reminds us that godly sorrow works repentance. Joseph may have had some regret, but he works that out through through acts of repentance. He did take courage and ask for the body of Jesus. I don't want to paint it all as regret, because true godly sorrow does work repentance. By going through all of this with the body of Jesus, Joseph may have been showing some regret, but he also was working to make it right as best he knew how in the moment. He was showing repentance in the best way he knew how. And I know perfectly well that we cannot work our way to heaven, quote-unquote, but repentance does show itself in actions. And Joseph shows some amazing actions in taking care of the body of Jesus. And so we're going to spend quite a bit of time on this point, I also see here proper respect. The end of verse 59 of our text shows us that Joseph wrapped the body in a clean linen shroud. Some translations have the word cloth. The word clean here, by the way, comes from the same word we get our word cathartic from. It was a cleansed shroud or a cleansed cloth. He didn't just use some old dirty rag because this wasn't part of his family or this was just some person or I'm just taking care of somebody. He chose a cleansed rag because there needed to be respect here. We're not given all that many details. But the Bible tells us that the body was wrapped. Before doing that, in Jewish culture and Jewish custom, the body would have been washed out of respect. And when you consider what our Lord had been through, Not just on the cross, but in the hours leading up to the cross. This would have been, to say it lightly, a difficult ordeal. Just picture Joseph and others taking a rag or a sponge and pressing into that place where those nails had gone through the wrists, through the feet. Just picture, if you will, them taking that rag and rubbing it across the forehead 
where thorns have been beaten into that tender flesh. Just picture them taking that rag and finding thin blood on the side and the hip of our Lord where that spear had taken the last bit of blood from the body of Jesus Christ. They washed my Lord's body. And having completed that task, they wrapped it. Strips of cloth between 6 and 12 inches in width were made. They were laid across the body. But then a mixture of myrrh and aloe and some other smaller things in mixture were, were, were wrapped on, or excuse me, were painted on that wrapping for some obvious reasons. One would be to keep the stench down over time. But also, these, this particular mixture formed an adhesive that would hold the claws together. It wasn't Egyptian mummification as we think of it, but it was, it was a similar process. And we're told in John 19 and verse 39 that 75 pounds of spices or ointment were used for this process. I'm told by those who study such things that at that time, between 50 and 70 pounds were commonly used for the people of highest respect. They used 75 they went above and beyond for the King of Kings. And there's proper respect to, uh, shown also in the simple fact of the tomb itself. It was a new tomb. It was Joseph's own tomb, probably meaning his family tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. When one repents, it's done to the highest degree. Joseph shows respect above and beyond in these moments. But I also see at this scene some personal relationships. Not so much with Joseph himself or even Nicodemus, who showed their faith in action, at least so late in the story. But I see personal relationships with the women who are there. Matthew 27 and verse 61 specifically mentions Mary Magdalene. Interestingly, he says, the other Mary. Well, Mary Magdalene, of course, you recall, was the woman from whom Jesus had exercised seven demons. Luke 8 and verse 2 tells us. And it seems from that moment that she was faithful to the ministry of Jesus. But the other Mary. There's more than one other Mary, isn't there? There's more than three Marys, or more than two Marys, I should say, in the New Testament. This is the mother of my Lord. This is her son. Do you remember when Jesus was presented at the temple all the way back in Luke chapter 2? That man named Simeon had spoken of Jesus. He glorified that he was getting to see Jesus. But then he looked at Mary and he said, A sword shall pierce your soul also. Don't ever let that prophecy end just on the cross. Because here was Mary at the tomb. Going as far as she could go on the earth with her own son, her firstborn. And we're told that they observed, they saw what was going on there. I love the word here. It's the word theorazo. Theory. Theorized. Mary Magdalene and the mother of Jesus, Mary, were not just giving a passing glance. 
They were observing every last little detail that was going on. Can't you just imagine that's what they would have done? Doesn't that seem just like people, Mary Magdalene, who is faithful, but Mary, his mother, doesn't that sound just like what would have been done? Everything needed to be done just right to show that honor and that respect and and for for the moment, but for the son as well. They, They looked upon, they observed, they theorized. They wanted to make sure everything was done just right. I see these things in the burial of Jesus. I see possible regret. You can disagree with that. That's fine. I see powerful repentance in Joseph. I see proper respect. And I see personal relationships. But really, when it gets to a point of application, I also see me. Because that list that's behind that box so often describes me. There are times where I have regret because I haven't been courageous enough for my Lord. There are times there's regret in my life because I haven't spoken up when I needed to or should have. But hopefully, there are times I strive to make that right through proper repentance. Not trying to work my way to heaven, but simply doing what I know to do. Stepping up, we might say. And I do that by showing proper respect, honor to the Lord. When I hear the way people use my Lord's name in vain, I know they are not honoring my Lord. I want to show Him proper respect with actions, yes, but also with words. And part of the reason is because I so deeply desire a personal relationship with Him. I want to be reminded of what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, that I, that I may know Him. Chapter 3 and verse 20. But maybe even more powerful than that are the sometimes forgotten words of Colossians 3 and verse 4, where Paul says, Christ, who is your life? I see me. I know what happened those moments that Jesus died, the moments after. I know what happened the hours after Jesus died. What happened days after Jesus died? Up from the grave He arose with a mighty triumph for His foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and He lives forever with His saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah! Christ arose. On that Sunday, Peter would come to the tomb. He wasn't there when Jesus was buried, but Peter came to that tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary had come and reported about what they had seen, that he's not there. We've talked about He's not there. Peter and John came, and it changed Peter's life forever. Peter had tried to be faithful before, but he's the one who always was sticking his foot in his mouth, and we like to make fun of him. But now that Jesus was risen, and now that Peter saw the proof of that, Peter's life would never be the same. And we know that to be true because he preached in Acts chapter 2, he preached in Acts chapter 10, he continued to preach, and by the time you get to his later life, where he writes that little book of First Peter, he's an elder in the local church. And all of his life, from his preaching to being an elder, all of it was based upon the motivation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus gave all of the hope. 
First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we have an inheritance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved in heaven for you. But we have that blessing, we gain that inheritance when we picture the resurrection. Same book, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God from a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do days after his death? He obtained and he purchased our hope. And we should never be the same again. When I understand the gospel, that yes, Jesus did die, that yes, he was buried, but yes, praise God, he came out of that tomb. I can know that I have an unending imperishable reward if I picture that burial and that resurrection in the waters of baptism. Jesus purchased my hope. And because Jesus did that, because of what He did, and because He came out of the grave, I today can live with certainty. That no matter what life may throw my way, I am walking in the way that leads to salvation. Because Jesus overcame death, overcame that burial, I also can die with courage. Because I know that death is not the end of all things. And because Jesus overcame death and overcame that grave, I can walk with confidence. Because just as Christ broke the bonds of the grave, I too will live on and on and on and on with Him who is my life. There's a peace I've come to know. Though my heart and flesh may fail, there's an anchor for my soul. I can say, it is well. Jesus has overcome. And the grave is overwhelmed. The victory is won. He is risen from the dead. And I will rise. When He calls my name, no more sorrow, no more pain. I will rise on eagle's wings before my God fall on my knees and rise. It is a message that needs to be intellectually known. It is a good news message. It is a message that needs to be compared alongside any other message. But it's a message that needs to be heralded with all authority because it alone 
is the gospel message. That Jesus died in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. And that He was raised in accordance with the Scriptures. But Paul will go on to write in that same chapter that Jesus is only the first fruits. Meaning, if I follow Him, I too will overcome the grave. But only if I follow Him to the cross. Have you met Him there? Have you let His blood that He shed on the cross wash away your sins? Have you pictured that death and burial and resurrection of Jesus in the waters of baptism? It's the only way that one gets into Christ where all spiritual blessings are. It's the only way that I can in any way reenact what Jesus did through my faith. But if I do, I have that anchor for my soul. I have that confidence. And I have the hope. Because Jesus becomes my life. This morning, if you are not a Christian, if you don't have that hope, or if you as a Christian have not been honoring that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus by the way that you live, by the way that you talk, by showing the proper kind of respect to the Lord, it's time to make it right. He went to the cross for you. He went into the grave for you. And He overcame it to give you hope. If you'll give your life to Him, I'll be standing and sing to encourage.